Welcome to the Ministry of the Bread of Life. I'm Joel Van Hoogen. This is a program of the International Ministry Church Partnership Evangelism and its Missions Fellowship, the Bread of Life in Boise, Idaho. You can learn more about our work by going to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. Now to God's Word for today. This broadcast comes with a warning. The scripture we shall read is quite graphic in its details. It reflects the depravity that the nation of Israel had sunk into in the days of Elisha. Though God was judging the people of Israel, they did not recognize his judgment. At the same time, their willingness to devour their own children so that they could live shows us not the hardship of the famine, but the hardness of their hearts. And when our hearts are so hardened that to live as we want, we take our children's lives, we're about to enter into God's judgment. And ask you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. The passage that we're going to be dealing with is a pretty difficult passage to deal with, but one that we have to address, and we have to address it in grace. Uh, we're going to be speaking about judgment, and the judgment that God places upon people, and we have to recognize even when God is bringing judgment upon our own lives, even when we at times are in the clear. You know, we don't sense that we have done anything to bring God's judgment upon ourselves, the fact is, when we recognize that it's falling on those around us, God has called us as followers of Jesus Christ to be intercessors. And one of the things the intercessor feels and knows is a profound identification with those who are still in their sin and under God's judgment. And so they ache in that reality and they long for God to deliver in that reality. And so you find that the prophets oftentimes prayed, Lord, forgive them their iniquity, but God, forgive us our iniquity. God, forgive us our iniquity. And they strode in the middle of the judgment of the people, and they walked in the middle of their sin as well, and they sought God's, and interceded for God's forgiveness and God's mercy. And so I would have you keep that in mind as we deal with this delicate subject. I sent an email out saying that I, I wasn't going to read the whole passage because the, our story goes from 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24, to 2 Kings 7, verse 20. But I am going to read a section of scripture here which is kind of delicate. There's some things here that might surprise us, but let's look at it. Beginning in 2 Kings chapter 6, I think this morning what I'm going to do is I'm going to pause a little bit just to provide a little commentary as we're reading through this to help you understand the passage. And it happened after this that Benadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth a cab, that is a pint, of dove's droppings for five shekels of silver. And by the way, the idea here, I think, is that dove's droppings is Hebrew slang for the scrapings at the bottom of the barrel of dry goods. It's the stuff that's just at the very corner of the barrel, and I think the slang was dove's droppings, although some suggest you might even take it literally. Now, the next part of this is rather gruesome, and I want you, as you read it, to, uh, well, it'll remind you of something you might have learned in Grimm's fairy tales. I don't think our fairy tales are as grim as they used to be, but think Hansel and Gretel here, the only difference is that this is not a fairy tale. Then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my lord, O king. And he said, 
If the Lord doesn't help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? As you get from the note of the king here, he doesn't see that this famine is a situation where God is responsible or where God is bringing a judgment upon the people, but instead he's seeing this as a situation where God is not willing to or able to intervene to rescue the people. In other words, in a sense, his thinking is God is at fault here for not delivering us and you're asking me to deliver you? Then the king said to her, what is troubling you? And she answered, this woman said to me, give me your son that we may eat him today and we'll eat your son tomorrow. And so we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, give me your son that we may eat him. But she's hidden her son. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes. And as he passed by on the wall, the people looked. And there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. In other words, the king had on himself articles reflecting repentance or of submission to God. But if you'll see by what he says in his next words, this was only an outward gesture. It wasn't genuine. It wasn't inward reality because this is what he says. Then he said, God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. But Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were meeting with him. I think this was the elders or leaders of the city of Samaria and they're consulting with Elisha. And the king sent a man ahead of him But before the messenger came, he, speaking of Elisha, said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? This is Joram or Jehoram. Ahab was his father. And there was a time when there was a great famine that also came upon the land in Ahab's day. And during the time, we understand that Ahab sought out to put to death all of the prophets of God in Israel. Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? The king will be running up behind him. And while he was still talking with him, there was the messenger coming down to him. Now, in between that phrase and the next phrase we're going to read, we're going to see that something takes place, something changes. Because the next words we read are the words of the king himself. It appears that the king has caught up with the messenger, that the king has Stop the messenger from carrying out the mission that he sent him on. In other words, the king has had a change of heart from the rashness and the oath that he made at that time. And here now the king speaks. And in this statement, what you should see is a softening, a recognition that this suffering that they're experiencing, this famine that's come upon Samaria, is indeed a judgment that God has sent upon them. And then the king asks a question, and the question suggests a note of yielding to God, of hope that God may have an answer for him. And this is what it says. And then the king said, surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Now listen, when you read your Bible and you understand scripture, part of reading it is understanding the tone that you use when you read it. And I think when you look at this, why should I wait for the Lord any longer, you can't see this as a statement of protest, as an argument or a complaint against God, but you have to read it as an expression of something true in a heart that's being broken. It's a true, broken-hearted inquiry. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And the reason we can understand it that way is because of the very way in which Elisha now responds to the king. This is what Elisha says. Then Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Here's why. Tomorrow about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, 
and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So an officer on whose hand the king had leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he, speaking of Elisha, said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. As a child, I seem to have received, it seems to me at least, a a portion of discipline in our home that was greater than the rest of my siblings. Uh, In other words, I got more spankings than anyone else. That was because I wasn't a quick study in learning my lessons from the previous trials that I had been in or troubles that I had caused. And I just proved that adage that those who don't learn from history are destined to repeat it. And so I repeated the history over and over again, bent over my father's knee. Uh, I wasn't learning the lesson, obviously, and... It's important when God is dealing with us and chasing us that we learn what it is that God is trying to say to us and trying to teach us. Hebrews 12, 6 says that the Lord disciplines those he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You want to learn what it is that God's trying to teach you for no other reasons than that the least is so the lesson could be concluded, right? You want to learn it so at the very least you don't have to keep repeating this history of God chastening you until you learn it. It's considered a strength in a person's life that they can be somebody who bounces back from adversity. And we admire people who are resilient, individuals who, you know, you just kind of can't hold back and keep down. They bounce back over and over again. And although we might admire a person like that, it's actually possible to bounce back too quickly, to bounce back so quickly and rise so fast that you never learn the lesson or realize the purpose for the correcting moments and events in your life. You don't want to wallow in misery and self-pity when you're going through difficult times, but at the same time, you don't want to overcome them so quickly that you miss the lesson that's found in the disciplining rod of God over your life. The story that we're looking at this morning has a lot of different layers to it, and in order to understand them, we have to kind of look back at those layers, and there are certain points of information in the story that are inferred in the text more than directly spoken, but they're, they're the ideas that give meaning to what we're reading the text, and so here, let me just suggest to you a couple of them, and the first one is this. There is a famine in Israel, all right? There's a famine in Israel that's taking place, and it's actually taking place before the Syrians come down upon Samaria to besiege it. What the Syrians do is they're taking advantage of this difficulty and trial that's taking place in Israel and they're piling on as a strategic way to gain power and influence and take over the country. As this famine is increasing, what normally happens are the people in the outer villages who are suffering begin to move in towards the center of Samaria to find resources and help. And so as they're abandoning the villages, the armies of Syria are able to progress all the way to the gates of Samaria with little resistance. And now they're surrounding Samaria, this capital city, and they are exponentially increasing the impact of this famine. This is how the enemy seems to work. You know, when you're down, he piles on. When you're going through difficulties, he adds to it. When it rains, he pours in his challenges and his trials on you. And that's exactly what's happening in this passage. So that's the first thing to understand. The second thing is this. Elisha has gained a position of instruction before the king and the elders in Samaria. He's done that, and we remember some of the other stories that we've gone through here. It's because Elisha has been used of God to bring up spectacular deliverance to the king and his armies on at least two other occasions. So now he's, he's been brought into Samaria itself And he's giving instruction to the king, and I can tell you the instruction he's giving to the king. It's this. This famine is a judgment from God. 
This famine is a judgment from God, and you're going to have to recognize that he's judging us because of our sins and you because of your sins, and you're going to have to repent. And unless you repent, you won't experience his deliverance. And when the Sumerian army comes and begins to oppress them and surround them, Elisha doesn't change his evaluation of the situation. Elisha's evaluation is still the same. This is a judgment from God. You must repent and turn to God, and then God will bring you deliverance. This appears to me to be the obvious background for events that we're reading right now. God is a deliverer. God desires to draw those he loves out of deep waters of adversity and trial. And God is also a God of justice. And God will not wink at our wickedness or our rebellion. The seeds of a rebellion and resistance against him produce fruits of judgment upon our lives. God can rescue us from that judgment. And God would rescue us from that judgment if we'll recognize what he's doing and what we're receiving. And if we will repent and turn to him for mercy and rescue. But if we don't repent and we don't turn to him, the judgments will continue to fall and they'll increase with greater and greater judgment until we're either awakened to repent and turn to him or he hands us over to his final and irrevocable judgment at the end. Well, thank you for listening to the Ministry of the Bread of Life. To learn more about our ministry, let me suggest you go to one of two websites. First, go to traincpe.org, traincpe.org, to learn more about the work we're doing all over the world to equip and engage the body of Christ in personal evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. Or to learn about our work in your community, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, God bless you.